Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in a world in need of repair. I'm Heidi Repke, coordinator of the Lenten Preaching Series. Our guest today is the Reverend Fletcher Harper. Fletcher Harper is an Episcopal priest and the executive director of Green Faith, a global multi-faith climate and environmental justice network. He's worked with diverse faith leaders around the world, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and former United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Reverend Harper is the co-founder of SHINE, an international campaign that works to achieve universal access to affordable and reliable energy. He spearheads the faith-based fossil fuel divestment movement around the world and is one of the faith leaders of the People's Climate Marches. Reverend Harper plays a leading role in the Interfaith Rainforest Initiative, a campaign organizing religious communities to fight tropical deforestation and to protect indigenous people's rights. He's also the author of Green Faith, Mobilizing God's People to Protect the Earth. Fletcher, welcome. Thank you for being here. We had planned to host you in March of this year, but for obvious reasons, we weren't able to do that. Uh, but we're glad you can join us this way through the magic of technology. Um, can I ask, where are you and how are you? Thanks for asking, Heidi. And yes, the world has changed. Uh, I'm in northern New Jersey, where I live, and I'm doing fine. But my longtime partner is a medical worker who, along with her colleagues, has been offering really heroic and selfless service to a number of people who are very, very sick. So my heart and all of our hearts go out to, to those frontline workers who are protecting us all. Well, again, thank you for being here. And I'm going to start out with my favorite question, which comes from Krista Tippett. Would you tell us what was the spiritual background of your childhood? I grew up uh, as a regular church-going child at an Episcopal church in uh, northern Westchester County outside of New York City, near where my grandmother lived. And so the cadence and rhythm and poetry of Episcopal prayers and a beautiful stone and wood church played an important part of my own religious up upbringing. I also... From a very early point in time, had a, a very strong sense of connectedness with greater than human forces in the natural world, the sense of beauty and of awe and of wonder um, and of power and of subtlety that I think so many of us have in relationship to nature. Those were two important sources of spiritual influence for me. And a third was growing up largely in New York City, the incredible dynamic diversity of, of peoples, um, different races, different ethnicities, different nationalities, uh, people from all different parts of the world. And so I think those three elements really represented some of the key spiritual and moral influences in my childhood. And it sounds like you had some family 
uh, that was supportive of those explorations as well? You mentioned a grandmother. Did they play into your growth in this area as well? Um, I would say that my mother had a very, very strong aesthetic sense, which made a, a real contribution. Uh, my father was a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. and that played a, a life-saving role for him. And he was really beautifully proud of the relationships that he had and the work that he was able to do through AA. So that was a that was a uh, an important model and source of support. I remember consistently how he went out twice a week to his meetings and at his funeral when I was 21 years old of the 400 people who came, I think about 300 were people from AA. Wow. So those were those were also I was I was fortunate to have those influences as well. Yeah. And then how did you come to be director of Green Faith? I had served as a parish priest in northern New Jersey for a total of 10 years and really had loved that and had always found ways to blend uh, religious education and, I hope, beautiful worship, along with a strong level of social engagement. Uh, The parish that I pastored, we housed the homeless, we were involved in advocating and organizing for affordable housing in a very expensive part of the country. We were involved in, at the time, a campaign called Justice for Janitors that was about trying to get a living wage and better working conditions for janitors in large corporate and industrial facilities. But as I moved forward in my work, there was something that was missing. And I came upon a new organization that was called Partners for Environmental Quality that was working on organizing people of faith to become engaged and concerned about climate change and environmental protection. And so I became involved first as a volunteer. And this really activated at a very deep level my sense of what my purpose in life was was meant to be. The appreciation of nature that I mentioned earlier, my commitment to social justice and equity, uh, my experience of diversity growing up in New York City. Um, and I was fortunate in that the organization was at a point of transition. I was invited to think about what it would be for me to take on a leadership role. And I went home that evening and had a very, very powerful and direct spiritual experience where a lot of things lined up at a very deep level. And it it felt like the right thing. And that was now 18 years ago. So I'm very fortunate to have landed where I have. I appreciate what you said about climate work connecting both social justice and environmental justice and spiritual practice. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see those things being linked? So when one looks at what the causes and the impacts are of pollution, of climate change, of environmental degradation, it just couldn't be clearer that 
the gravest impacts, and they are serious, um, fall on those among us who are most vulnerable. Um, vulnerable from the perspective of racial and ethnic and cultural identity, vulnerable uh, for those among us who are more financially poor, um, because it's on those communities almost universally that the greatest level of pollution, the most intense impacts of climate change, um, the most consistent exposures to toxic contaminants, and the least level of access to clean air and clean water and open space and healthy food. Um, these things all, all come together, the, the prevalence of negative impacts and the relative absence of positive environmental conditions. And so that has led me and Green Faith to, to see that Protecting the environment is not only about protecting the beauty and majesty of God's creation, but it's also about dealing with a threat to those who are uh, the least responsible for environmental degradation and at the same time the most uh, most exposed to it. That's a that's a really good summary of um, kind of why why it affects all of us, um, but can be invisible to some people. There's ways that some of us who are more privileged might not have to feel some of the effects quite as quickly. The executive summary of Green Faith's assessment of what's going on in the world in terms of climate change, what do you see happening in a snapshot version? So I'll, I'll answer this in a way that, that may seem a little bit different from the way that you asked it. What, what we see um, around the world is a growing level of awareness and fear and anxiety, concern, frustration at the impacts from climate change that just are increasingly as clear as day. All of the increased drought and severe storm activity and other climate impacts like that. What's important now is that there is this growing level of anxiety and concern and frustration and anger and despair that I mentioned earlier. And what we see is that it is for people of faith, their faith that enables them to face into these challenges directly. So what we see in terms of the, the impacts of climate change, there's, there's the physical impacts on the one level. And then the next level is the response that we as, as people have. And that's where we need to turn towards the problems together and learn how to, to work together to build the power that we need to make the change that will save us. Can you give us an example of one way that you or your organization has been turning toward problems of climate change? Sure. And I can do that in, in reference to the pandemic that we're all currently suffering through. We believe that people of faith have the opportunity to change the hearts and minds of large numbers of people in countries around the world. 
we've got a unique ability and capacity to appeal to people's better selves and deepest values. And so because of that, we focus on building relationships at the local level among people of faith who are increasingly concerned about this. And when the COVID pandemic hit, we were just about to launch uh, an international multi-faith climate and environmental justice network. What we did instead was to start organizing daily calls for care and resilience, where we would feature a religious leader speaking about the stresses and the challenges that we faced with the COVID pandemic and with climate change from a religious perspective. We'd give people a chance to talk with each other, to talk in small groups, to share online about what they were feeling and how they were trying to deal with this moment and what struggles they were having. And then we would begin to work with them to help them start to build local communities of care and resilience because we know that that's what is required to make it through not just this moment, but the time that we have coming in the future as greater numbers of climate disruptions are going to start to hit us. Now, some people may say, well, that that sounds like a, a different kind of response than I would have expected. And we do the campaigning and the advocacy and the pressing for systemic change and for our religious institutions to change that is an absolutely fundamental part of what's needed. But we always start with an honest, caring relationship. And I want to underscore that because I think that it's a mistake to think that we will get through the climate crisis without ourselves being transformed. And people are transformed and truly changed through open and honest relationships that they have. And that's why we start in in that exact place. I appreciate your image about local faith circles, Fletcher. I was listening to a podcast recently that described resilience as uh, a well-worn path to our neighbor's door. The idea that our connections with people who are geographically close to us and our dependence on the people in our neighborhoods is uh, one way to strengthen us. In uh, you're right, we absolutely do need the larger collective actions, but um, particularly as we're at home and quarantined, I have met so many more people in my neighborhood than I knew lived here, and I think that those relationships have an opportunity to blossom in a new way right now. You know, the Federal Emergency Management Agency a couple of years ago did a, a study about what were the factors that helped people make it safely through a natural disaster, an extreme weather event in their community. And the single most predictive factor of people's well-being through a crisis was that they knew their neighbors. Hmm. Um, and that's really quite something if you if you think about it. And I, I think that we need to recognize the, the power that we all have to start building these communities of care and resilience that have a local as well as a globally distributed dimension to them. Because the forces that we're, we're up against are, are really massive. I mean, when we look at the, the forces that, that we're facing, 
it's a, a combination of increasingly authoritarian governments in different places around the world, from India to Brazil to certainly here in the United States to in uh, many other countries. At the same, and the, and those governments are um, using surveillance and racist policies and tactics to um, tear down and erode democracy, to reduce and seek to eliminate the rights of the people concerned citizens to, to, to protest, to freely assemble. At the same time, and very tightly allied with those authoritarian governments, are major extractive industries, um, the fossil fuel sector, the agribusiness sector, um, the mining sector, um, all of which depend on those authoritarian governments to give them access to ever greater amounts of territory, territory which often belongs to native or indigenous peoples, so that they can extract um, economic, uh, economically valuable commodities. And the third sort of piece of the picture, which is a key cultural part of holding this up, is extremist and fundamentalist religious forces, which, again, in, in all of the countries that I've mentioned, are very tightly aligned with the increasingly authoritarian governments and with the extractivist industries. And it's really a very unholy alliance. And in order to, to dismantle that, we need to build a very powerful global, locally rooted, internationally connected movement of people who share a, a true commitment to values of compassion and of love and of justice. Because the world really hangs in the balance around this. And it's a, a mistake to think that the transition will be will be one that doesn't demand a lot of us. When you were mentioning neighbors a little while back, I was thinking of Jesus's teaching about uh, the Good Samaritan in answer to the question of who is my neighbor. And if we think in terms of uh, neighbor as both geographic and those in need of care, I think that opens up a lot of opportunity for um, action and, as you say, environmental justice. And I think that it's really important also to understand neighbor in certain ways in a very literal sense of, uh, you know, the people geographically close to us. There are, you know, what I, I get asked a lot of questions about how do I respond to questions from people of faith who are um, skeptical or, or actively deny that climate change is real. And my answer to that is that I don't really spend much time with people who hold that view for the simple reason that that's a, a pretty hard-earned view. And I'm not going to dislodge them from that, nor is, is anybody. But what I do spend a lot of time on is, is a majority of people who have that latent sense of concern and, and of fear, but who don't know what to, about, about climate change, but who don't know what to do about it. And that's where I think we need to start building those neighborly relationships, because it's only by coming together and it's only by building that kind of local cohesion um, that we'll be able to start to reshape our, our communities in the way that, that needs to happen. Yeah. Looking over time and over cultures and 
dramatic changes that have happened, uh, some of the biggest motivators for those dramatic changes are fear and love. Do you find this to be true in terms of the current environmental crisis? I'd say that the more that people are aware of that often semi-conscious concern or frustration or fear or anger that they have, the more open they are to asking themselves deep questions about the values that they want to live by and to taking action. Um, So I think that, uh, you know, several generations ago, we saw an embattled minority of deeply conservative religious people feeling that the culture had betrayed them or left them. And out of a fear that they were losing something that they valued deeply, they came together and organized in an extraordinarily powerful way. Um, For me, for Green Faith, um, we work with people now who have a growing sense of fear and of frustration. And I think it's important to mention the frustration and anger along with fear and, and love. Um, and all of them in many ways are an expression of a same, a similar deep commitment to, to life. Um, I think it's just important to recognize that we live in a moment where more people are feeling that and that if we're able to speak to that, we have an opportunity uh, to build richer communities, to build power together and to make real change. Amen to that. That sounds good to me. I know that Green Faith works with people of all religious affiliations, even I assume with people who might not claim any formal religious affiliation. What are some of the ways that spiritual texts and practices tie with work on behalf of the natural environment? So it's a great question. And we've seen consistently on our multi-faith calls for care and resilience that people Uh, crave the reading of some form of sacred text. Um, And it's a a deeply human and beyond rational expression of our need for wisdom and comfort and strength and even authority from a source greater than ourselves. And so when we talk about from a Christian perspective uh, that The Psalms say the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Or when we recognize that Jesus at the Last Supper took bread, which is the fruit of the earth and the work of human hands and and wine similarly, it helps affirm that what we're talking about is not something that is limited in its cultural context to you know, the latter part of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, but is something that's ancient and that is enduring and that is powerful because of that. So I think that sacred texts help make that connection to the deeper part of ourselves that are absolutely fundamental in terms of determining the the course of our lives and who we really are, and, and also how we decide to show up in public. Have you seen any spiritual practices that are tied with environmental action and love? So uh, 
Lawrence Jennings, who is a Mennonite, African-American, lives in Harlem, uh, has for many years had a spiritual practice of doing a an urban prayer walk with men in his community, where they go from one location to another. Uh, the distance changes depending on any number of circumstances. And they stand outside a place of significance in the community, perhaps a place where there has been a car accident of some kind or a place where uh, there's been a, an occasion for, for real joy, a school where a number of kids have graduated, or a place where there have been acts of violence, for example. And they pray and they take note of not only what happened at the place, but the sky, the air, um, any trees, rocks, um, any part of the natural world that's there also. And it's a, a form of bearing witness and a form of healing and a form of connecting the, the deep inner place that nature reaches as us with the challenges and joys and struggles and pains that we have as, as human beings. So that's, that's one example. Uh, I've seen Buddhists, uh, on many occasions, going out into forests to meditate. Um, when the Buddha was first enlightened, he was seated in meditation underneath a bow tree. And to this day, many Buddhist monks still go out into forests to meditate because the access to deeper levels of the self or deeper, le deeper levels of being um, still, still resonates in the forests to this day. And I, I think it's also really important to note that for indigenous communities around the world, this sense of interconnectedness between ritual, cultural and religious ritual and the natural world is a fairly seamless one. And that there's a great deal that we need to, to learn from that. When you were talking about a prayer walk where the men notice the sky and the rocks. I was reminded of my kids. I have three of them at home with me and their attention is very much in their settings. They are not, um, as I am prone to do sort of in their heads as much, but they are very much in their bodies and in the wisdom of being present. And I appreciate how you said that there is, there is a spiritual connection with, um, with nature and with each other. Um, speaking of parents, as a parent, I am really concerned about environmental causes. I have that vague anxiety that you described earlier and frustration. Uh, and I worry about the life, the world that I'm going to pass on to my kids. Uh, so I do things at home. Uh, I buy secondhand. I cook plant-based meals. We have chickens and bikes that we use a lot. And I support local farmers, but I feel like a drop in the ocean. How do my small actions connect at all with a larger change or larger actions? I'll, I'll answer in two ways. First of all, I think that everybody's change matters. It's, it's inconceivable that we can change the way the, the world works without enormous numbers of individuals making changes based on their concerns, based on their values, based on who they love and, and what they love. 
Um, and at the same time, I would say that that your story, Heidi, had sort of implicitly in it that you were doing this to some degree on your own. Yes, with your family, but our sense is that the the next step in the evolution of this work for an awful lot of people of faith is to is to start coming together um, in local communities around this, um, not only to tear down the sense of isolation and of going it alone, but also to create opportunities to make change that can be made by groups, but not really so easily by individuals. Um, it's, a, it's, it's an old community organizing mantra that uh, organized people have more power than unorganized people and that organized institutions have more power than unorganized institutions. And so I think that what you've described is very common and I think represents a, a, a great jumping off point for getting in contact with people in your community. So if you were coming to a church where I was preaching after the service, I'd say, hey, would some people be interested in, in coming to my home for a meal? Heidi cooks a, a, a good vegetarian this or that. Maybe she'll bring some of that. And we can talk about what we think about what's going on and, and how how we feel about it. Um, staying again, sort of at that level of let's build the relationship first. Let's not right away going into say saying, hey, we've got a campaign for this piece of legislation or that piece of legislation, but really getting to know each other and what our concerns are and what our motivations are, because that creates a, a, a powerful foundation for further future public action. Well, speaking of creating connections with others, where have you found surprising allies in your work? I would say the short answer is everywhere. Um, what we see is that there is a modest percentage of the faith community here in the United States and globally that is deeply, deeply concerned about these issues. Um, I would say it's, you know, 5% or less of the faith community. And and that's a, a it's a wonderful group of people. And they're absolutely vital to, to the movement. Um, what we also see is that when other people who don't count themselves among that already deeply converted set get the chance to, to talk about this, um, to think about it, to reflect on it, to engage a little bit more deeply, that there are substantial numbers of them who want to dig deeper, who want to do something, who want to um, turn to their faith and turn towards the issues and turn towards each other in the course of doing that. And so we find uh, we find that all over the place. And I can't say that I, uh, and, and what we see is that in more conservative evangelical churches, there are people who absolutely care about this. Um, people in uh, liberal Unitarian congregations, which are in many ways often some of the most publicly active, there are also people who aren't necessarily involved, who want to get more involved. So we see a lot of, a lot of um, unexpected support around this work when approached in the way that, that we're talking about. 
That's that's good to hear. Uh, I think we all need a bit of hope right now. I think that one thing that uh, I found hopeful recently was the uh, scientists who found that during the months of March and April, as people were staying home during the beginning of the coronavirus um, pandemic, there was a 17% drop in carbon emissions. And it was it was a staggering uh, statistic really to see, but it gave me hope that you know maybe we can make some larger scale changes. Um, where do you find hope right now? I find hope in the meetings, the conversations that people are having in green faith circles in different places where they're wrestling to come to terms with what these threats mean to them, where they're working together to identify what's going on in their community and how they feel they can make a difference, when they're learning what it feels like to going from being a a sort of private, unengaged citizen to someone who's, for the first time, taking some kind of public action. Um, All of that, to me, is is unbelievably hopeful and, and energizing. And I'd say that we have to be very careful about uh, how we think about and talk about the environmental, any um, seeming environmental benefits from the the COVID crisis for two reasons. One is that obviously, as as we all know, um, no one, none of us want tens of millions of people out of work as a way of cleaning up the environment. To the contrary, we want uh, a very powerful commitment by governments to job training and job placement to retrofit the world for a renewable energy and sustainable future. And I think the other thing is that the any lasting value of the, of the pandemic for climate change is really up to us. Any temporary reductions in emissions won't really matter very much if we don't learn to turn towards the problems and use our faith to come together and turn towards these things together and figure how to how to build for a positive future. There are, I think, really important lessons around that we can learn from the pandemic. Um, and I just would be very careful about um, extrapolating on the physical benefits at this point. And you're saying it that way is very, we, we, we run into that very regularly with people sort of searching for and trying to um, you know, trying to find some hopefulness in the midst of a, a tough time. Um, it's just that it, it also unintentionally plays into the mantra of, mm-hmm. oh, to protect the environment, right. you've got to throw millions of people out of work, which is patently false, but still right. something that, that a number of people fear. Right. Right. I think to me, it demonstrates that we can make large scale changes rather quickly we just need to find the longer term foundation and motivation for doing them sustainably, not because we have this uh, certain virus, but because we want to care for our earth and because we want to build systems that will treat all people and the earth more generously and um, with care. Yeah, to me, it just said that we can make the change somehow, but we have to do it in a way that uh, that we can sustain. I think that's really well said. And I think that 
you know, at the, at the risk of being a, a broken record. That, that's why we're so focused on this idea of, of building relationships locally, because our sense is that that is how one builds a, a truly sustainable culture in the long term is when, I mean, even now we find that if we're socially distant, it helps an awful lot to be connected um, on these, you know, on our care and resilience calls that we've seen that, that, that community really does matter enormously in terms of sustaining us and in terms of helping guide us towards a, a better future. Thank you. Fletcher for your wisdom and your experience here today. It's been a real pleasure to talk. Depending on our age and where we've lived, we may remember other major disruptions to life as we once knew it, even before the current pandemic. Whether wars or natural or other disasters, crises force us to reckon with our fears. They can cause a reassessment of our most basic needs and vulnerabilities. At these times, we may long for wholeness and reconciliation in a new and urgent way. The very ground beneath us feels unstable. The Hebrew scriptures often pair repentance from sin with healing of the land. For some, climate change may seem distant or inevitable or even a judgment from God, but for others, It is an opportunity to seek connections with all living beings in humility and hope that somehow, by saving them, we might also be saved. The Calvary Podcast is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary. And thanks to you for listening.